words, uh, follow along as I read these words for you from Exodus 6, 1 to 8. But the Lord replied to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of a strong hand, he will let them go. And because of a strong hand, he will drive them out from his land. Then God spoke to Moses, telling him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but I was not known to them by my name, the Lord. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land they lived in as aliens. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, from uh, whom the Egyptians are forcing to work as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, tell the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. I will take you as my, uh, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. This is God's word. Amen. Take a seat. Amen. Amen and amen and amen. I am the Lord. And um, I, I am not the Lord. I am Chad, one of the pastors. I announce myself as the Lord. Hi, how are you? Uh, he is the Lord. Um, and great to be praised. Uh, we are starting Exodus this week, and we'll be continuing for the weeks to come. Um, but. But really, the first sermon here today uh, wanted to start with setting the stage for, for the coming weeks. That's the reason we're reading from Exodus 6. We're somewhat moving into um, the book a little bit, but in many ways, because that passage in which was just read, God summarizes what he's going to do in Exodus and why he's going to do it and who he is. And I wanted to spend time this morning with all of you talking about some of those big introductory ideas about Exodus so that we can together move in to the book. And it's a, it's a somewhat of a large task. Um, and I'm going to try not to keep you for more than 90 minutes. No, um, no. Um, but we can do this together with the Holy Spirit um, teaching and guiding us. So if you would, I'm going to pray for our time. And join with me. Father, thank you so much for your kindness. Thank you for your word. God, thank you that we have the opportunity to, to read this together, to hear from you. And God, I pray that your spirit would meet us in a special way to teach us and open our eyes uh, uniquely to what you have uh, for us, that your spirit would fill us. And God, that we'd come to know you more and to know Jesus more through this time together. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, Exodus, we are moving into the intro, God's mission to redeem his people. This is God's mission to redeem his people. Exodus is an epic story, somewhat timely of a very oppressive leader of a superpower out of fear and pride pressing in on a smaller people in a destructive and violent way. Quoting scholar Terry C. Muck, Exodus makes great theater. An exciting plot, the dramatic escape by thousands of people from an abusive despot, special effects, an escape accompanied by miracles galore, great actors, Moses, a charismatic leader, negotiating the release of God's people. It is a gripping story. So much so that it's been made into large-scale movies. I mean, I had a hard time hearing anything about Exodus as a child and not picturing Charlton Heston with his amazing hair and a shepherd's crook holding a little lamb. And then they came later to make amazing movies with big budget special effects, CGI and all that fun stuff. But it just fell in comparison to the Ten Commandments. Am I right? No, Nobody in here with me that? Okay. Oh, no. <laughs> Y'all can throw some shade at me because I remember. No, I'm going to talk about that. 
Here's what's bad about that. Mm, I'm definitely not. <clears throat> so much so that I was kind of too, oh, I don't want to get into this. Anyway, this is not part of my time here, but thank you. Talk back from the audience now. <laughs> um, but it is a gripping story, but it's more than that. It's more than just a gripping story and a, a great tale, and it does make for good theater, as, as, as noted. There are a lot of views on what Exodus is. In fact, uh, there's commentary about Exodus being sort of a national foundation myth, something that many other cities and nations of antiquity had. Uh, Rome had a myth about Romulus and his twin brother Remus founding Rome, uh, actually finding Rome on the site where they were suckled by a she-wolf as orphaned infants. So they were raised by wolves. Athens has a, a, a foundation myth of Athena, the goddess of wisdom and war, competing against Poseidon, the god of the sea. These nations have these large-scale epic stories of their foundation, and some say that's what this is, essentially Israel's story of why and how it came to be and why it has a right to the land that it lives in. Some might look at this as a moral parable that we have something to learn from, spiritual aspects, morality that's being taught in the story, and still yet others as a real, actual, historical event. I don't want to bury the lead because that's where we are. For us as Christians, though, why does Exodus matter? Why does it matter? Well, the first five books of the Old Testament, referred to as the Pentateuch, are pretty much centered around the story of Exodus. And in the Old Testament, the rest of the prophets, you're going to see them pointing back and praising the God who saved us out of Egypt. And the New Testament writers, including Jesus himself, continue to refer back regularly to Moses and the Exodus. So what we're going to do this morning is we want to take some time to talk about how we view and are going to be studying and viewing Exodus. What is it that we, how do we look at this story? First, what are the kind of lenses that are helpful for us as we're studying the book? What are some of the major themes that are present throughout Exodus? And then I want to wrap up our time with really four practical ways that I know I'm praying and I encourage us all to pray that God can grow us in through our study in Exodus. So first and foremost, Philip Ryken, who wrote a commentary on Exodus called Save for God's Glory, gives us four helpful lenses for considering Exodus. The first lens is that we want to look at Exodus biblically. Biblically. Second, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 says that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. As we know and as we realize the inspired word of God is in Exodus, we want to study verse by verse. We want to understand the plain meaning of the text of Exodus. We want to hear from God trusting that he has preserved for us what is profitable for us for righteousness. That we can look to the story of Exodus and hear from God. He inspired Moses and he instructed him to write. And we see that throughout the text of the Pentateuch where he regularly says, write this down, Moses. And in fact, in the New Testament, Jesus points back to the Exodus and attributes it to Moses as the author. For example, in Mark 12, 26, when he talks to the Sadducees, he says, haven't you read in the book of Moses and the passage about the burning bush? So we want to look at it biblically as it is prevent, provided for us by God, written by Moses. But also we want to consider biblically, where does it fall in the context of Scripture overall? Where does it fall in the context of Scripture overall? Well, Exodus is the second book in the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible, books of Moses. In Genesis, God creates the world, and in Exodus, God creates a nation. A nation that is built from the covenant that he establishes with Abraham and his family in Genesis. R. Allen Cole, in his commentary on Exodus, points to the incredible importance of Exodus in the Pentateuch. He says it this way, in the Pentateuch, considered as a whole, there are only five major themes. God's promise to the patriarchs, the Exodus, God's self-revelation and covenant and law at Sinai, the wandering in the wilderness, the entrance into Canaan. Three of those five major themes are treated at length in the book of Exodus. And in addition, 
it looks back to the first theme and on to the last. Moses' vision and call at Mount Sinai are deliberately shown as fulfillment of God's leading till Canaan is reached. Therefore, Exodus, while, while Exodus is only part of a wider and far larger whole, it is a real part and in a sense enshrines the heart of the whole Pentateuchal revelation. That's how pivotal and central the story in Exodus is. The entire Old Testament, as we said before, points to the miracle of the Exodus regularly. And in the New Testament, salvation in Christ is explained through the Exodus. In many ways, the entirety of Scripture is looking at and interpreting the Exodus. In many ways, the entirety of Scripture is looking at and interpreting the Exodus. So we want to consider Exodus biblically. Secondly, the second lens, we want to look at it historically. There are many objections to the historicity of the Exodus. Some of them might question the exact dating. Some objections will point to the fact that we don't have specific mentions of the Exodus in Egyptian record. Uh, maybe that there are no physical traces of Israel found in the Sinai wilderness. Where are all these people that have been wandering around? Why do we not see pots and pans? Tent stakes, what's missing? But why does that matter? Why does it matter whether or not Exodus is historical? Why does it matter? Can it just be a good story? Can it be something that could make a great movie? Can we simply look at the moral and spiritual values that the story teaches? Exodus and the rest of the Bible as a whole all present Exodus as history. Jesus himself referencing the Exodus as real events. The very word of God stands and falls on the historicity of Exodus. Remember the entirety of Scripture is looking at and interpreting Exodus. The connection between all of Scripture and the historicity of the Exodus is so strong. If there were no Exodus, Riken asserts, quote, there is no reason to believe in a God who has the power to save and no need to obey his commandments. Paul make a very similar assertion about uh, the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. If you remember, he says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Paul points in the New Testament to the power of God in the resurrection of Christ and says our faith rises or falls on whether that is real. And in the Old Testament, we see the power of God on display in the Exodus where he redeems his people for himself, calls them out of bondage and slavery to establish them as his covenant people to establish his promise. Apologists may say that you can believe in God but deny the Exodus as being too fanciful. Crazy story, right? This wild thing of all these people moving through, embellished. But if God who created all things doesn't have the power to speak, move, and rescue his people like the Exodus, then what power does he have? And why would he lie about it? What God do you believe in? Is he a small God with no power to rescue his people? And if he is, we have, what hope do we have in our sin? Jewish scholar addressing this very issue, Abraham Heschel says, if God had not, nothing to do with the prophets and Moses, then he had nothing to do with mankind. But he did. Ladies and gentlemen, he did. God had everything to do with the prophets, with Moses, and with the Exodus. He moved and he worked in power through Christ's resurrection, and he continues to move and work in power today. He is still rescuing and redeeming his people. We aren't going to handle this exhaustively, but all the objections to the historicity of the Exodus really mostly, or many of them, based on an apparent absence of evidence, be encouraged because they don't actually remove the plausibility of the historical events. The story of Moses and the Exodus are consistent with everything we know about Egypt during that time. Known possible dates actually coincide with oppressive pharaohs who undertook large building projects with slaves. We know they had slaves. There are actually Egyptian references to Semitic slaves, which are the origins of Israeli people, in the time before the Exodus. In, in, a, in a large monument called the Stele of Merneptah, okay? I can't, I'm not saying it, it's Egyptian. The Stele of Merneptah, which is celebrating the Pharaoh's accomplishments, dated shortly after the time period of the Exodus, actually brags about plundering Canaan 
and that, quote, Israel is laid waste, his seed is not. Now, clearly it was hyperbole. Pharaoh's bragging on himself. Obviously, he didn't lay waste to all of Israel. But it's telling because it shows us that shortly after the time that Israel would have left and been to Canaan, that the Israelites were actually living in Canaan as a large enough nation that a Pharaoh would brag about beating them in battle. Very few documents would have survived the wet Nile Delta. That's very clear. We don't have much of anything else. It's a bad area for preserving documents. But what we do have, <coughs> what we do have are actually like official records set in stone. And those set in stone documents would not record for, for uh, Egypt such a devastating loss, would they? I mean, can you imagine a monument being set up in Israel, I mean, in Egypt, about how all of Pharaoh's men were lost chasing a group of slaves? So they don't have that recorded, but in fact, the Bible is actually unique here among ancient documents. Consider this, as a founding national myth, Exodus presents the people of Israel as grumbling, complaining idol worshipers. Referencing this fact in, in Exodus, biblical scholar Professor Nahum Sarna, he's Jewish, he said that the Exodus, quote, cannot possibly be fictional. No nation would be likely to invent for itself and faithfully transmit century after century and millennium after millennium an inglorious and inconvenient tradition of this nature. The Exodus story does not glorify, hear me, the Exodus story does not glorify Israel. It only encourages us to praise and worship their God. So we want to look at it historically. And thirdly, we want to look at it theologically. How do the events of Exodus shape our understanding of God? What is God teaching us about himself? What is he doing in the world in history? What is God teaching about us and about our own sinful natures? What is God teaching us about how we approach him in the tabernacle? What is God teaching us about Christ and the gospel? See, because ultimately in the Exodus, God is the hero. God is the hero. God is the deliverer. God hears his people and reveals himself to them. God raises up a redeemer. God brings the plagues. God drowns Pharaoh's army. God provides for his people in the wilderness. God gives his law and his covenant. God provides mediators in Moses and in the priest. And God dwells in the midst of his people, filling the tabernacle with his glory. If Exodus is about God, we must also understand it is showing us in final and finds its final meeting in Christ. Jesus even points to this on the road to Emmaus. He says, as He's speaking with disciples after his resurrection in Luke 24, 27. It says that he begins with Moses and all the prophets and he interpreted for them the things concerning himself and all the scripture. So if he starts with Moses, he's gotta be talking about the Exodus. Jesus, in fact, we find is the better Moses. He's God's redeemer. He's like Moses rescued at birth. He also sojourned in Egypt. He passed through the waters of baptism. And then like Israel was in the desert for 40 years, he spent 40 days in the wilderness fasting. And while Moses went up to the Mount Sinai to receive the law, coming out of the wilderness, Jesus went up to the Mount to give the law. One other notable instance of is Jesus's transfiguration where Jesus shows himself in his glorified body and he visits with Moses and with Elijah. And it's notable that Moses is there. And it tells us in scripture that as Moses and Elijah are there, they're talking with him about Christ's departure. The Greek word there is Christ's exodus. Jesus was crucified at Passover. He was the Passover lamb. And Jude 5 goes so far as to say that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt. Exodus is a story about God. Exodus tells us about God, about his holiness, his mercy, his justice, his steadfast love, and his deliverance. And Exodus points us to Christ. 
the Passover lamb who once and for all saves God's people from slavery to sin. So we want to look at Exodus and study it theologically. And finally, we want to look at it practically. Practically. If Exodus is of any value for us, it must have a practical implication in our life. Paul actually references Exodus when he's instructing God's people in Corinth. Corinth, And he references Exodus about how they can learn from that story. 1 Corinthians 10, he says this, Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And he wraps up this section, verse 11, by saying this, that these things happened to them as examples. They were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. So even Paul points us to Exodus and says, what was written is for our instruction. The Exodus is a story of deliverance. And believers, brothers and sisters, it's our story. We were slaves to sin and now set free in Christ. We needed deliverance. Like Israel received manna and water in the wilderness, we need God to provide for us. Like Israel received God's law in the tabernacle, we need God to show us how to love and to serve him. And like Israel had God lead them in the wilderness and dwell with them in the tabernacle, we need God to lead us and dwell with us. We need his presence. So if we look at those at the scripture in Exodus through those four lenses, there's also some major themes that we want to be aware of as we look at the text. And the first one is this, God's identity and his power. In Exodus, God's identity and his power. Remember this, Israel's tradition and knowledge about God up to this point is actually entirely based on oral tradition and all entirely based on the fact that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had direct interactions with God. This is 430 years later. No one else had had that direct interaction and Moses was the first one to show up on the scene over 400 years having heard directly from God. Through Moses, God is now revealing himself to his people. And actually when we read in Exodus 6, he said, even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't know me as the Lord. In Exodus 3, he tells Moses specifically, tell them I am who I am. And that's the exact name that Jesus references when he tells the Pharisees and the Sadducees, before Abraham was, I am. And almost got him stoned, literally blasphemy, because they knew that's the name of God. From the first play, God was demonstrating his power and demonstrating his identity so that Pharaoh would, quote, know that he is the Lord. He said, Pharaoh, I want you to know I'm the Lord, so watch what I do. Finally, he, in his power, destroys actually the entire army of an ancient superpower, drowning them in the sea. His power is on full display, but at the same time, he is doing so so he can show us who he is and, 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 I, and show us his identity. In Exodus 34, we see the story of when Moses goes up on the mountain and he's meeting with God and God says, I want to, uh, he asks God, he says, can I, can I see your glory? And he goes, no, you can't see my glory. That would definitely kill you. You can't handle that. But here's the deal. I'll let you see the back of my glory as I pass by. And so he tucks Moses in the rock. He allows him to see the back of his glory. And as he passes by, we read in Exodus 34 that again, God identifies himself. And he says this, he proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed this. He said, the Lord, the Lord is compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and the fourth generation. Now here's what we want to see in this, in this section here and even from what God continues to reveal about himself. He is a powerful, fierce, and mighty God. 
but he is also compassionate and gracious and abounding. He says, overflowing with faithful, steadfast love. Forgiving, kindness, mercy, love. And even in that passage, though, we also see a hint of one of the other major themes that go throughout the scripture, and it's this, where he says, he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Why is that? Why can he not leave the guilty unpunished? Because one of the second themes that I want us to point to is that God is holy. God's holiness and worship is a theme throughout Exodus. Yes, God is powerful. Yes, he is gracious. Yes, he is merciful. But he is also holy. Divine holiness means that God is absolutely morally pure. And God's absolute holiness is terrifying next to our unholy lives. In Exodus, God shows up in fear-inducing and awe-inspiring ways. Can you realize the way he shows up? He shows up in a burning bush. He shows up with 10 plagues, lightning and thunder at Sinai, a pillar of fire. His holiness is evident. And from the beginning, God, this holy God has been, he sends Moses into Pharaoh and says, bring my people out so they can worship me. Bring them out so they can worship me. God desires for his people to worship him and God's power and grace invokes worship. When the people in Exodus 4.31 realized that the Lord had paid attention to them, it says that they had, he had seen their misery. They knelt low and they worshiped. They worshiped him because he was gracious and he was merciful and he saw his people and he heard their cries for help. But as unholy people before a holy God, Israel needed to know how to live that set-apart life. They needed to know how to approach and worship this holy God. And so God, in order to dwell amongst his people, gave the law. He gave really super clear instructions on how to build the temple. I mean, detailed on everything that needed to be done. He set apart mediators speaking through Moses. He spoke through Moses. He had the priests and all of the rituals of cleanliness that they needed to go through, demonstrating how important or how other and separate he was in his holiness. And in the tabernacle, the distinct separation of God and his holiness was clear in that physical barrier that was set between the most holy place and the rest of the tabernacle, that curtain that was hung between the two. God is holy. And in the scene in heaven, we also read that the cherubim are around his throne saying, holy, holy, holy. Now, the reason they repeat this three times about God is because they're really emphasizing this. I mean, have you ever had, you know, somebody ask you, are you hungry? Are you hungry, hungry? No, I'm hungry, hungry, hungry. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm getting now, and I keep adding that on. Well, that's what they're doing with God. He ain't just holy, and he's not just holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. And yet, as God strives and works and shows us how to approach him ultimately as we try to follow the law as his people tried to keep the law before God we're more like Isaiah when he first sees God and says woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips we're so undeserving and unholy the law in the tabernacle shines an enormous spotlight on the cavernous divide between the holy and pure God and us and our unholiness and unrighteousness. But, but here's the thing you must understand. These themes also point us to Christ. Jesus said himself, don't think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, I came to fulfill. In Colossians, Paul tells us that all these things are a shadow of what was to come, but the substance is Christ. Jesus became sin so that we might stand in righteousness before that holy God, before, before our holy God. And Jesus is our mediator who tore the curtain. Remember that? He's on the cross as he dies. The, the curtain and the temple tears, separating God and the holy, and holy, a holy of holies from everyone else. Because now Jesus stands as our mediator as Hebrew says, our great high priest, so that all of us now, all of God's people can now approach the throne of grace with boldness, 
We can all come before the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. So God's holiness and worship of him is a theme throughout Exodus. And one of the third themes I want to look at are God's covenant and promise. God made a covenant with Abraham back in Genesis. We pointed to that and we said that Exodus is a fulfillment of that. God's nation bringing together the nation of Israel. He affirmed that covenant with Isaac when he told him in Genesis 26, I'll give you all these lands to you and your offspring and I will confirm the oath that I swore to your father Abraham. And then he again affirms to Jacob in Genesis 28 when he tells him, I am the Lord your God, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring the land in which you're lying. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out toward the west, the east, the north and the south. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Look, I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God's covenant and promise. And then we see in Israel where they have been toiling, suffering in Egypt and they cry out to him. In Exodus 2, 23 through 25, the Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor. They cried out and their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. And God saw the Israelites and God knew. God didn't forget, by the way, the language there of God remembering. It was just time for him to move. It was his timing. He heard their groaning and it was time for him to move, to bring his people out of Egypt and to move them on to the promised land. God's covenant is central to the story of Exodus. His covenant leads him to redeem Israel from Egypt. When Israel is worshiping the golden calf in the wilderness, Moses appeals to the covenant. God was angry, rightly so, because his worship was going to these golden image. And Moses intercedes for Israel and calls out and appeals to God's covenant promise with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, pleading he doesn't destroy them. But how is it that God can, in his holiness, keep this covenant with such an unholy and unrighteous people? How is it that God's people transgress the covenant over and over again and still be forgiven? How can a holy God simply seemingly overlook unholiness? When he has articulated such a detailed plan for how he must be approached in worship, and then when we could not ever live up to the standards of God more purity, how can we still stand? Christ. Christ. All of the transgressions from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Israel and to all of God's people, those transgressions were not overlooked. They were paid for by Christ. They were paid for by Christ. God's grace doesn't depend on us it's offered freely by faith in Christ and even in the Old Testament in Genesis we hear that Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness my man had just as many faults as you and I but he believed God he lied about his wife he was willing to like let her go off and marry somebody else just because he was scared somebody was going to hurt him he willingly tried to go around God's covenant to try to have kids outside of his marriage he wasn't perfect, but he believed God. And that is what counted as righteousness. So God's covenant, God's covenant and his promise are thematic in Exodus. And the fourth is God's redemption and deliverance. Exodus is about redemption and deliverance. God is delivering his people out of bondage. We read this, the, the passage before about Exodus 6, 6 through 8, where he tells Moses, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the forced labor of Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham and I will give, you, <clears throat> give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. God's the only one that can use that many eyes in a sentence. I mean, I've had, 
I, I used to have a bad time. You ever do that? You know, like you're writing English class and you're a kid and you're just like, I, 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 and like, oh, chill out, dude. Very self-centered. Yeah. It's not good writing, but God, he's the one doing all of this. God's plan that he articulates doesn't stop on bringing them out of Egypt. God's covenant includes bringing them to the land he swore to Abraham and to bless all the nations through. God's plan of redemption is bigger than slavery in Egypt, and that's why Pharaoh can't stop God's plan. Pharaoh is like all prideful and powerful and in his own world and doing his thing, but he's just, if he's in the way of God's plan, it's not, it's not gonna happen. He doesn't understand, he doesn't see and understand as God is trying to articulate, you need to realize I am the Lord. I am the Lord and I will redeem and deliver my people. God's plan is redeeming all of his people from slavery to all sin in Christ. From every tribe, nation, and tongue, you and I who are not Jewish, who are not, who are not Israel by blood, we are blessed through Abraham in Christ. Christ is God's plan A for redeeming the entire world. And out of Exodus, God moves his people so that he might redeem the world. And God's power to redeem and save are on full display in Exodus, on full display. So how do we grow? How do we learn? There are four very practical opportunities I want us to pray for that we can grow as we study Exodus, that God will grow us in. The first is, to trust in God's providence, to trust more in God's providence. Genesis 50, 19 through 20 reads this. We're gonna go back to Genesis for this. This is a great story too in and of itself. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. So why do I point back to this verse? Why do I go back to Genesis in this section? Trusting God's providence. Because Joseph is verbalizing something that would be very difficult for most of us to get to. Okay? So understand this. As God's people is brought into slavery, the reason they got there is because Joseph's brother sold him into slavery. That they were jealous of him. If you're familiar with the story, maybe you've heard of Joseph and the coat of many colors or the Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Is that the play? I, don't, I haven't seen it. But it's a well-known story. But the story involves some jealous, jealous brothers, sons of Jacob, who take Joseph, they, they capture him, and they send him away to Egypt. They sell him into slavery. He goes to Egypt, and there's a whole line of how God works in this really trying time where Joseph is thrown, he was wrongfully accused, thrown into prison. He eventually comes to a place of authority, and when his brothers come because of famine, they come to Egypt. And Joseph's been just managing the food really, really well there. Everybody starts coming to Egypt to get extra food. They show up and they find out that Joseph's in charge, the one that they sold into slavery. This powerhouse nation and their brother that they tricked and sold into slavery is the one in charge. And so there's reconciliation in the story. Jacob and his family end up moving to Egypt. That's how they get there. But after Jacob dies, his brothers become very concerned and they think, oh no, Joseph has only left us alive because dad was around. Now dad's dead. What's gonna happen to us now? And Joseph in his wisdom, Joseph in his confidence and trust in God and what he's doing says this, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about this present result, the survival of many people. He could look back on what was absolutely devastating plan. I would never pray, hey God, if you could just work this out, maybe throw me in prison, you know, have me this rot there for a while. Uh, I'll come back out, try to, to navigate slavery a little while. And then I know it's gonna work out for good. But in hindsight, trusting God, that's exactly what Joseph says. And when we look at the story of Exodus, we can see that God does rescue his people, but note it's not until 430 years of slavery. In his timing, countless Israelites were born and died in bondage and oppression. But God knew what he was doing. 
we have the privilege, I guess, in this text, or the ability to at least hear some of the reasons God waited so long. In Genesis, he tells Abraham, know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge that nation they serve and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to the ancestors in peace and be buried as a good old age. And here in verse 16 is the final note. In the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. What that means is the Amorites being the Canaanites, the people who were in the land that God was promising. Though the criticism of the God of the Old Testament is that he comes in and just violently upheaves all of these people groups and raises their villages and kills and slaughters countless innocent people. What scripture actually tells us is that they're not innocent, but he was patient with them. When he says that the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure, he was giving them another 400, 500 years. He was giving them additional time, patiently waiting. And in that time, they continued in sin. So he wasn't coming to a place that he was just haphazardly going to move out of the way, here come my people. But God was working in patience. And additionally, we see that in Egypt, before he destroyed, all of, uh, before he destroyed Pharaoh and all his people, he was patient with them. And we don't know for a fact, but it seems evident if Israel had not actually faced such harsh conditions, they likely would have intermarried with the Egyptians and just settled nicely in Egypt. I mean, consider that after all of that slavery, they still wanted to go back after Moses took them out in the desert. And then when he got to Mount Sinai, they were worshiping golden calves. They were still tempted by paganism. But here's my prayer that for us, like Joseph, and also for the encouragement that was read, like in Romans eight twenty eight, that we would believe and know that all things work together for the good who, of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. And I know that's a really big ask sometimes. We are finite creatures with finite minds serving an infinitely wise God. And there are times... There are moments and there are places and there are seasons that we're in where we don't have the benefit of additional scripture that says this is what God's doing. Oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and how untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? I would pray that we would trust God and trust in his providence. Because when we're in those moments where things don't seem to be going right or it's, things are, are going sideways and it doesn't seem to be working out the way that we, sh- or we're suffering or we're in pain, legitimate pain. Right now in Ukraine, there are, there are people, believers, God's people in the crosshairs. And, and there are missionaries who are willing to stay even though they have been given the heads up to get out because they feel that God is calling and leading them to continue to serve a people, and they are at risk for death. And we don't know what will happen or what has happened to any of those people. And we are fortunate in this country right now to be not directly attacked at this moment, but we suffer in so many other ways. I'm not denying that. Suffering is real no matter how it comes. And the temptation for us is to to think that there's someone or something that is that is doing this to us in that moment and to blame and to shift and to be discontent and to not be trusting. But remember that there are only really two options in those circumstances. Either someone has foiled the purposes of God in your life or God's at work and has something he is doing or he's teaching in the moment. We cannot always trace God's hand, but we can always trust God's heart. Trust in God's providence. My second prayer for us is that we would rest in God's promise. Genesis 15, 17. 
When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. Now that's a really strange verse, I know. But there's a reason I put it there. You're like, what's the complete thought? There's divided animals, there's a torch. There's a smoking fire pot. Uh, The late theologian, pastor, Dr. R.C. Sproul, whenever asked about his favorite verse, always pointed to this verse. And the reason he did that is because this is the moment in which God made his covenant with Abraham. And the significance of this covenant, it's often the actual term covenant is is, is, um, correlated with cutting, to cut a covenant. They actually took animals, cut them in half, divided them, and put them on either side. There's other records of this occurring. And two people or um, different people who were making the covenant would cut those two apart, and they'd come together, and they'd walk between the animals. As to say, here's my promise, here's what I'm promising, you're promising me, we're walking through together and sort of saying, hey, if I break this, let me be ripped apart like these animals. Okay, pretty aggressive. The significance of this, of this particular passage is that Abraham set up the covenant, he did all the stuff, he put the animals out, and then God let it get late and Abraham fell asleep. And then God by himself walked through and made the covenant with Abraham there was nothing that Abraham had to do it was all on God Hebrews 6 13 says this for when God made a promise to Abraham since he had no one greater to swear by he swore by himself and as Psalm 145 reminds us the Lord is faithful in all his words listen it can be tempting to try and persevere, to try to earn God's love and his grace and think there's some works that we have to do to accomplish that. But I want us to rest in God's promises. That we can come to him in repentance and trust and know that all he says is true. That for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ and that he tells us, I will never leave you or abandon you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? God keeps his promises. And Jesus continues to encourage his people, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Let's rest in God's promises. He is faithful and always keeps his promises. We can rest in them. The third and the fourth are sort of together, the two prayers together somewhat because they both correlate to our lives and how we live. Not only do we want to trust in his providence, not only do we want to rest in his promises, but we want to live out as God's people. And so the third is glorying in God's presence, how we live inwardly, how we worship and abide in God's presence in our relationship with him. God is imminent, he is close, he is near. And as the psalm says, I have asked one thing, the psalmist asked this, I've asked one thing from the Lord is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. And my prayer for us is that we would gaze on the beauty of the Lord that we would glory in his presence. We would worship God, enjoy his presence, abide and rest in him because he is near to all who call out to him. And the fourth and final prayer for all of us is that we would live outwardly as God's people. Not only would we be connected to him in his presence, but we would live outwardly as God's people. First Peter reads this, therefore with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Guys, as God's people, if we trust in his name, we live set apart in holiness, both in the way we live and act in our lives, we're also set apart for his purposes. God is holy and it desires us for to live holy lives before him, to walk before him as the old Latin phrase, corum Deo to live before the face of God 
in his presence knowing that there's nothing hidden from him. And we can live not duplicitous lives, but open lives before God, knowing that he loves us in Christ fully and wholly, and there's nothing we can do to separate ourselves from him. And now in Christ, we are also living as God's people on mission, redeeming his people for his glory. That's ultimately what he's doing here. And that we join him in that mission. And that as King's Cross, this is his church. Who has redeemed us in Christ, we now live for Christ. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is now our ministry in Christ. That God was reconciling to himself the world in Christ, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. So I want us, as we are pleading on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Live as God's people. That's my prayer for us. As we study through Exodus, that's my hope and my encouragement to each of you that we study and look at these themes, that we continue to trust in God's providence, that we rest in God's promise, that we glory in God's presence, and that we live as God's people. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the way that you reveal yourself to Scripture in Exodus. And God, thank you that we can rest in your promises. We can trust in your providence. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to grow us in all of these areas. I pray that you would fill us with your spirit so that as we walk out from this place, we would recognize that you are close, that your presence is with us. As you are close and dwelled with your people in the wilderness, that you dwell closely with all who are called by your name. God, I pray that we live outwardly a life that accords in holiness, that demonstrates the holy God that we serve, that we're holy as you are holy and have called us to be. God, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your grace. And I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.